Radio. This is Catholics Read on cradio.org.au. Hello and welcome to this episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke. And I'm Kiara. And Victoria is not joining us today. She's uh, all the way down in Albury yes. at the moment. She's, she's on her way back. So in this episode, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Mr. Truman's Degree, which is an essay by Elizabeth Anscombe or G.E.M. Anscombe. I don't... Gertrude Elizabeth... Don't know what the Elizabeth is. Anscombe will do, Anscombe. or Betty. I'm sure she'd love that. Betty? I don't know. <laughs> I've never seen her referred to as Betty Anscombe. No. B.A. Um, no. No, I'm sure she'd hate that, actually. Uh, she was uh, an Oxford don, shall we say, and I don't know. smoked a pipe, so I don't know. I don't <laughs> think Betty is really the right... <laughs> nickname of Elizabeth. No, no. Um, no, she doesn't She doesn't strike me as a Betty. No. Uh, nonetheless, um, yeah, so she was, as Kara said, she um, was a philosopher at Oxford uh, University in the sort of mid to late 20th century. Uh, she passed away, I think, in 2003. Yes. Um, Catholic, uh, obviously so from some of the stuff that she she wrote um she wrote a defense of um of the church's teaching on contraception um which is something i intended on doing on this but they never ended up doing it um anyway this this one here uh this essay that we're going to be looking at is called as i said mr truman's degree now the mr truman in this is mr truman president of the united states during the end of the second world war what was his first name harry truman yeah i was thinking it was harry but i didn't want to like embarrass myself and go harry truman yeah no like, harry truman who was uh, took over from roosevelt in this latter half who was 45 to 50 something as a one-term president one and a half term president, technically. Oh, wow, there you go. Yeah. So he he in 1945 he he came in. Is that correct? I can't remember. Well, it had to have he, been 45. It was late. Yeah, because he he dro- yeah he anyway. Um, we'll talk about that later in the episode. No, it was um late 40s he came in because Franklin Delano Roosevelt died, and he was VP at the time, so he we're, got the job we're, we're there, go- and then Googling he went to the election. This, we're Googling this oh, in the- office, April 12th, 1945, so right at the end of the Second World War. Yes. Basically, the European theatre ends, like, in what, a couple of months? Yep. And Japan ends, ends at the in end of the another year. couple of yeah. August, I think. Yeah, something like that. Um, so, anyway, so so why are we talking about that? A um, bit of context is that uh, the University of Oxford, uh, don't think we need to explain that, no, um, if you don't know what the University of Oxford is, you hey, need you to might. get out from under your rock. Or or maybe <laughs> we just have teenagers or people who are not familiar with the English-speaking world and are listening to this to help their English. That's true. That'd be cool. That'd be very That'd be cool. really cool. That'd be very cool. Um, Good luck. It would only be helpful <laughs> if you're going to Australia because we speak very different to other English speakers. Anyway, all that aside... Um, Yes, so she was at Oxford uh, and she opposed uh, a an honorary degree that Oxford were go- was going to give Harry Truman pretty much on the basis that if you're putting two and two together here um, and looking at the dates, you know, April 1945 onwards, Harry Truman was the President of the United States when uh, they- That authorised the dropping, authorized, yes. the use of hydrogen bombs. Two two bombs uh, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, a combined people. total death of like what over a hundred thousand uh, people. Th- hundreds of thousands of people. It was a lot. It was bad. Um, 
dropped two hydrogen bombs on civilian targets in Japan. It was not pretty. And so, uh, yes, and so um, obviously that event then, you know, cast a shadow over. This was written in 1950, by the way. No, sorry, 1957. Um, this then casts a shadow kind of over the latter half of the 20th century, as Kiara would well know, um, mm-hmm. because you know have a situation where you can wipe out an entire city in one bomb drop. Yeah. Yep. Or in the case of these days, uh, as we're knowing with if this whole North Korea thing's still going on when this is published with a ICBM. Anyway. In which case you won't be hearing this if that whole thing does actually blow up. So, you know. Well, let's hope that <laughs> it won't. It'll be it fine. Um, It'll be fine. Anyway, so she opposes his honorary doctorate provided given, awarded by Oxford on pretty much this basis, um, that she sees the, the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima as um, as a grave evil and that he was responsible for this. And a war crime. Yes, um, and something that we should not be celebrating. Um, you know, it, anyway, she goes into potential, you know, she goes into the context of this. She got opposed. She opposed it. She then got opposed. He got the honorary doctorate and the rest is history. Um, but what's really interesting about this essay, it's, it's, it's after the fact, is that firstly, she provides a really interesting um, timeline, I guess, for what happened. Typically, when we look at Hiroshima, the, the arguments about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and I mean, Kiara is much more involved in political theory here. So, mm. I mean, I'm just looking at it from a layman's Facebook perspective. Go kind nuts. Of thing. Go nuts. Um, is that the way that it seems to be argued uh in the in in that sphere is in pretty much an isolation uh we were at the end the nearing the end of the war uh the united states was invading the basically outer regions of japan's island like japan itself's islands um and that a ground invasion was imminent um these two nuclear bombs were dropped japan surrendered end of the war Good thing, end of the war. Um, but that tends to be how this is construed, at least in, in my own experience, is that the argument is kind of situated on the, should they have dropped the bombs or not, full stop. Whereas Anscombe actually provides, like, a two-page sort of summary of the events that actually led up to it, uh, including... I never knew about a number of these things. Firstly, that Japan had approached Stalin... Um, to say twice on two occasions to say that they were looking at surrender and that they wanted him to mediate the um, basically the, the terms of, of surrender. Um, yep. I didn't know that. Secondly, that the United States had offered terms of surrender, but they were pretty vague um, and that Japan was a little bit concerned that America's terms of surrender were basically uh, we're kicking out the emperor and they were like, well, we can't have that. Um, and so they declined. Um, those are two interesting things that I didn't actually realise. I sort of knew that the situation for Japan was pretty terrible. Uh, you didn't just have the United States coming in from that angle. You had Russia had liberated China uh, from, from and Manchuria specifically from Japan, which They're is a big pre- sore point for Japan. Oh, yes. That was, that was a big deal. That, that and, and by the way, lost. Manchuria was actually invaded in the early 1930s, well before World War mm. II actually kicked off. And that was kind of the theatre where people saw and went, we need to do everything we can to prevent another global war because 
look what the Japanese did to yeah. Manchuria. Look up the rape of Nanking if you really, really, really want to be depressed today. It's really, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's quite, it's quite terrible. And in, in interesting, actually, we're going to be doing silence um, later. But another book that I was, I might possibly bring up in that is um, a book called Song for Nagasaki. Um, and the man at the centre of that, who may be a saint one day, um, the man at the centre of that actually served in in Manchuria and didn't like it. No, yeah, um, no it was pretty. It was pretty horrific. Um, yeah, so Japan. So the whole to- towards the end of the from the historical context, what we now know because all the documentation is now being released because mm. it's well off, well fifty years after the fact. So everything's starting to be declassified and released mm. for historians to study and archivists to go nuts over. And um, one of the things that is readily apparent is one: there were a couple of temp- attempts to mediate the surrender of the Pacific Theater or to mediate the end of the Pacific Theater, um, and. Second of all, the understanding was is no one wanted it continued wanted it to continue, but no one knew how to end it. And it got to the point where, as far as the Americans con- were concerned from the American side, I'm not as familiar with the historiography of the Japanese side. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also very, very, very interesting and mixed and very highly politically charged, even within Japan itself. Um, so the the only way that it was seen that it was going to end was either you're going to get a treaty of versailles and grind basically it would be the americans and the japanese grinding one or the other into a you know into you know down to nothing and it was japan that well, would have fallen that's first interesting because the first part of this essay she goes into this term unconditional surrender yes. because it came from basically the british goal yes for the germans yes was this unconditional surrender yes. she takes an issue with this because it's so vague yes what exactly this means that yeah. all rules and they tried the unconditional surrender at versailles and look what <laughs> and look what happened you got hitler mm, so that's... unconditional surrender was not going to be an option and the americans basically wanted to force a japanese hand because as far as they were concerned the cost of the japanese civilians lives by dropping these two bombs would have saved exponentially more American lives in the soldiers that they would have expended in a protracted ground war on their home turf. That was the rationale for it, which is horrific rationale, but when you're in the midst of war and see no end in sight, you do tend to get pretty desperate, even if you have the slight upper hand, even if you have the slight upper hand as the Americans did. This this is basically the crux of the centre of basically yeah. her argument is yes. talking about this. Is this is how basically war is not like the Queensbury rules. You know, you've got a definitive morality happening underneath it. It's not something that's just about politeness or sportsmanship, that there's actually a good and an evil going on here based on the decisions that are made in war. And one of those good or evil decisions is about murder. And she specifically defines murder as choosing to kill the innocent as a means to your ends. Now, of course, you know, you're... You've also got to um, put in there the, the idea that killing the innocent as an end in itself, which she acknowledges, uh, is also murder, but it's so patently absurd that... Well, it's not you know, so patently absurd if you know people who, you know, people who are really, yeah. really, really messed up in the yes, head. absolutely. Uh, but even then, you could still argue that actually they're not killing for the sake of killing, they're killing for some, you know, for their own yeah, perverse that's actually, desires. That's actually, actually, that's a good, that's a good point. You that's know, a good point. So... Um, but yeah, and she of course the one one of the things that comes up here though is, you know, well, who are the innocent and is killing um the innocent always wrong? Most people if you went out on the street and said is murder wrong, 
they would say yes, yes. You know, is killing civilians in this particular context wrong? Yeah, and that that's where you'd start getting a little bit shaky. People yeah. tend to p- p- things are usually clear when they're incredibly vague, yeah. you know. But when you start getting down the specifics, it where it makes things very. It's shaky. um, I had to I had to deal with that <laughs> with my students when I was teaching them. Mm how realism works and political realism is really important in this sense because as far as realism is concerned morality doesn't exist so long morality is what states interests are Mm. and states are interested in survival first of all and they do that by self-help so states need to be self-reliant in order to ensure their survival by any means necessary that is what is good Mm. and so the situation that i'd set up was the, or the, sorry, the scenario that I'd set up was the Australian intervention in the Solomon Islands. So about 2008, I think it was, the Solomon Islands basically broke down. Hmm. Um, and they requested that the Australian government send police and some special, you know, s- send some specialised police and military advisors to come in and help restore order, and they did. Um, and that's, w- that's what went down. That's a very realist approach to doing it. Um, and so I said to my, so I said to my students, well, how else could you solve this problem? And they're like, what do you mean? That's the, that's a, I'm like, no, 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 come on, start thinking. What else could you do? And they're, they're all just giving me blank looks. It was week two, admittedly. So, you know, they hadn't quite yeah. got to know me yet. And so in their textbook, they had the Melian Dialogue. For those of you who don't know the Melian Dialogue, it's the residents of the islands of Melos appealing to the Athenians saying, please don't slaughter us. We're not involved in this war whatsoever with Spar- with, between you and Sparta. You know, we're not doing anything. We'll stay right out of it and stay neutral and you guys can go do all that sort of stuff. Just don't harm us. But Athens decided in the end that, well, they could be helpful to Sparta, so we're just going to come in yeah. and destroy the whole place and sell all their women and children as slaves and burn everything to a ground so that they can't be used in the war effort to Sparta. Mm. And so... And so I said to There's them, a "Fascinating and ab- fascinating and horrible analogy to that in here." But sorry, go on. Yeah. So and so I said, so I said to them, "Okay, you know what happened in the Million Dialogue, right? And how that turned out? Like, yeah, I'm like, what if Australia did to the Solomon Islands what Athens did to Melos? And they looked at me like, "What do you mean?" I'm like, "What if?" So the problem is, mm. you have a break a state that's broken down and causing chaos mm. in our region. And since we're the dominant power in the in the Pacific region, it is our responsibility to take care of. Okay, so we've got this That's problem. Really interesting, we've got this yeah. problem here that we need to solve. Well, you know what solves the problem? You go in, you kill all the men, you take all the women back to women and children back to Australia, and stick them on the sugarcane farms, and you just burn the whole island to the ground. Problem solved. And someone looked at me and said, "You can't do that. That's genocide." I'm like, ah, can't. Yeah, is the wrong word to use there. Yeah. Of course you can do that. States do that all the time since when has, you know, the accusation of genocide ever stopped a state from being, you know, for want of a better word. Genocidal maniacs. Yeah, for being genocidal maniacs in the past. And And then someone said, finally said, oh, it's not in our interest to do that. And I'm like, thank you. Why? And it was all good. You know, and she explained why it's not in in Australia's interest to wipe out a state Hmm. uh, because it looks really bad. Um, and, you know, for a variety of reasons. And so that's kind of the crux of a lot of how World War II was conducted. Mm. It were really, there were realist calculations about survival and self-help. And so the nuclear – and that's how the nuclear bomb was effectively justified. That's how dropping those the hydrogen bombs was justified in the sense of at the end of the day, neither can live while the other survives, to quote Harry Potter. Mm. And so 
we need to, you know, so the United States needs to act in its interests with the technology that it has just discovered and, you know, can implement in order to force Japan to surrender. Now, it's really interesting that you use that term realist there. Yeah. Because that's exactly the term yeah. that she uses. Yeah. Now, of Political course- Political realism was born in this era, in this 20th century. Elizabeth Anscombe would have been all over it. So, with and she she talks about how she was- um, Just go, like, if, if you can manage to, to track this down- it's actually incredibly interesting to to read um, to read this essay um, because she does talk about how she read. She went back and read the moral philosophy between in the interwar period. Oh, and like she's like, what what happened here? What happened here? Good went out the window. Good, yeah. we get to quote her. Actually, she has a really interesting quote on this because this is very relevant to today. Mm-hmm. Um, she says it's less prevalent now, and now in this point is is the fifties, but. It seems really interesting that she says, The cardinal principle is that good is not a descriptive term, but one expressive of a favourable attitude on the part of the speaker. Ooh. So, good basically means- Whatever you want it to mean. You know, um, that's- I find that really interesting because you can apply that to a lot of things today. But anyway, going back to the realism thing. Yes. Is that she makes this interesting turn- in, in the essay and talks about pacifism. Now, what on earth has pacifism got to do with this? You know, like, surely pacifism is the antidote to this. And she says, no. No, it's not. It's not the antidote to this. And in fact, and I'm, I didn't read this into it, but someone else did. Um, I would credit them if I could find them really quickly, but I can't. Is, um, is that the, basically the principles of pacifism allow dropping of nuclear bombs. Why? Pacifism says you can't draw a line. It says all killing is bad. Don't kill at all. No distinguishing between murder and killing. All killing is bad. So the realist comes in and says pacifism is too hard and the only alternative is realism. Yes. That's a, that was a very I, – I was, I was actually not expecting it to be that quick to explain. But that's basically That's basically it, it yeah. Is that it's all too hard. You know, who, who are you to draw distinctions? It's all just too hard. You know, um, it's all killing is bad. Well, we might as well just kill then. Let's just accept the fact that we're bad. Yeah, yeah, no. And um, <laughs> I, to be honest, my political leanings are to, you know, my, my leanings as a scholar of international relations do tend to be towards a realist, but it's tempered by a couple of things. Might get into that later. Mm-hmm. Um, so realists do assume that human beings will act in the worst way possible. And a lot of the time, those assu- that assumption's pretty fair. Liberalism is the foil to realism in many ways, in the sense that it fundamentally understands that humans will tend to cooperate mm. for each other's benefit rather than just be jerks to each other. Mm. Um, that you know, realists assume. So those are kind of the two major differences. Otherwise, they're basically the same. Um, they're basically mm. the same ideologically. But the interwar period for international relations and the philosophy in general was really, really, really interesting, mostly because people were just trying to process the trauma of the First World mm. War. Um, and, yeah. you know, and we're trying to figure out how do we prevent this happening again? And you had the two competing camps. You had the realists and you had the idealists, that were what we now call liberals. Okay, not, yeah. the, not the Liberal Party yeah. of Australia. Not, these are small L liberals. And so they basically fought, have been fighting out a um, – a, not an ideological war, but a 
paradigmatic war as to what's mm. the best way to understand how the international system works. And that depends on who you talk to because culturally there are countries that have different um, patterns of alignment towards both of those ideas. Mm. Um, the United States is both re- is li- is liberal in many ways but is also very, very realist and hawkish in many ways. Mm. Um, mm. And so, you know, Russia, for example, complete realist. Nothing mm, does nothing else. Um, but realism and geo- geopolitical realism. That's the game they play. China does this as well. Um, yeah. Australia, again, a bit like America, we like to play both fields. Yeah. So yeah. Um, that's the inter- – so what Anscombe's kind of getting at here when she's talking about political realism and pacifism, because liberals aren't pacifists, FYI. Pacifism is an interesting thing. And I heard – I think it was Cardinal George – now that's deceased. Really, that's really good. I was going to bring this up. I really hope it's the quote. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cardinal George. I think Bishop Robert Barron is quoting Cardinal mm. George, who is his mentor. Okay, and he says, that's good that you bring this up because yeah. I was thinking about and, it. And yeah. um, his attitude to pac- pacifism was fascinating. It's one that I actually agree with. He was saying, not all people can be pacifists in the same way that not all people are meant to be celibate. Now, this, do, do, you mind if I, do you mind if I go in take, here? Take it, take it away, Luke. Okay. That's actually really interesting because I'd been thinking about this. I had a friend who who said that quote to me, and and it's interesting. But the problem, the problem is, I just noticed that our door's not closed. We've got like echoes happening. It's going to be crazy. Thank you very much for that, Kiara. Um, the door is closed. Um, I, I haven't I haven't been in this studio for months, so evidently everything's just falling out of my head. Um, <laughs> but yes, is that that's a really interesting quote, and I think that that. What what makes that so interesting for me is that on thinking about this since reading this and reading about the pacifism, which Anscombe calls a false doctrine, which is a really big call, mm-hmm. um, she really doesn't like pacifism. She pulls no punches. Um, I think she had someone die in the first one of her kids maybe. I can't remember. She had kids, I think. No, uh, I'm thinking of someone else. No. I'm thinking no. of someone else. She would have been too young. I I'm think. thinking of someone else. Um, yeah, you're right. But that doesn't work out, does it? Um, yeah, I, I don't think that would have. She she lived till two thousand and three. Yeah, okay. Yep. So I don't think, but none, nonetheless, with um with pacifism, is that Cardinal Robert George's just to repeat that quote, mm. the, the like vague quote. Yes, exact, the paraphrasing. The paraphrasing is that you know the world needs pacifists like the world needs celibates. Is that a celibate doesn't say that sex is bad. No. They don't say that sex is bad. No. However. With a pacifist, I think because because we need to be careful about applying this quote, because a pacifist therefore truly wouldn't necessarily then say that war is bad. No, they would simply say that it is not my role, that is not what I'm called to be a part of, and so I think that's why it's really interesting that if we if we sort of try and apply that quote, this whole idea, this analogy between pacifism and celibacy, is that you can still say that pacifism is a false doctrine while not wanting to engage in wars yourself mm. in the same way that, I don't know, what's what's a term for people who think sex is horrible? Um, Puritans. Puritanism, sort of, um, <laughs> is is not the same. Cathars. as as Yeah, as, as celibacy. It's not the same. No. The Catholic Church would say, yes, sex is great. It's fantastic. You know, babies, we do say it. love, um, you know, analogies for transcendent things, you know, it's awesome, but not everyone's called to it. And in the same way as war, war obviously is not awesome, 
Um, but in the sense that in its uh, requirement post-fall, you know- It's necess- it is sometimes is necessary. Sometimes necessary under very strict conditions. Yes. Now- If everyone obeyed those very strict conditions, we probably would never, ever get to blows. But unfortunately, people don't obey those very strict conditions. Yeah. <laughs> so, I guess all of my point coming to, to this point of, of what I find really interesting about- it's one of the things, anyway, that I find really interesting about this essay um, is that applying it to our own time, we can see that sloppy reasoning can lead to bad results. Um, and, and kill so, people. Yes. So, with something like, like for example, th- th- multiple things here. Where do you draw the line? That kind of reasoning. You know, we can't draw the line anywhere, anywhere therefore, whole hog. You know, um, these kinds of things, while can seem noble, you know, it can seem noble to say, you know, that all war and all acts of violence are completely horrible and we don't want anything to do with it. That can seem noble. We have to be very careful about where the principles of our arguments lie. Um, Now, before anyone jumps on me and says that I'm disagreeing with Pope Francis... Um, <laughs> yeah. I might be, I don't know. I don't know his full thoughts because there's been stuff about just war theory and all this kind yeah, of floating yeah. around. I haven't read into it. I don't know if I am. But that said, um, I do think, because I don't want to be part of, there's this whole thing going on. Oh, moment, yes. Do, anyway, I don't want to be part of that. We shall not, not say the I'm word. Catholic. I love Pope Francis. I want to be in good standing. Please don't accuse me of, of that. Um, but nonetheless, you know, it's, it is really important. I think what this highlights is that it's really important that no matter what side of an argument that you're on, you have to be very careful to look at the principles of your argument and see where they could potentially lead and throw in a bunch of common sense. What she said about the drawing the line thing is fantastic common sense. Yeah. You know, we can get, we can so easily get caught up, especially philosophers can so easily get caught up in this intricate abstract abstraction. Yeah. That that we lead to complete utter absurdities. Cough contemporary utilitarianism. Yeah. Where they come to the point where they're saying, well, you know, um, we you can't know. know anything at all because we're humans and we're limited limited or by our knowledge of our choices and the circumstances that lead up to those choices. So, or, or whatever. <laughs> this this whole ridiculousness about saying, you know, oh well, you know, um, it's okay to to kill uh, innocent children. Um, what's the difference between an innocent child in the womb and out of the womb? What's the difference between an innocent child out of the womb and a disabled person? What's the difference between a disabled person and a person that we find inconvenient? What's the difference between a person that we find inconvenient and a person on welfare? So on, so on, so on. Those last couple probably haven't actually made it into utilitarianism argument yet, but it might not be far off. Uh, Um, I think they kind of have, but they're from a certain regime that I shall not speak of because it's a law on the internet. Um, oh, a law on the okay. Oh, yes, yes. Now he gets it. Now he gets it. And I'm like, what law? No, um, <laughs> yeah. But also, on the other hand, that we as Catholics need to be very, very careful as well to think about the principles of the argument that, that we're using. Absolutely. Pacifism, to, to use that example, and not to keep banging on about it, but pacifism, I think, is a really good example of of something that we really do need, like, should highlight for other things, such as 
you know, pro the pro-life movement with regards to abortion, um, with same-sex marriage, with all of these different things, is that, yes, we might be on the right side of what the church thinks about it, which would lean towards a kind of pacifism, if you want to use a spectrum, um, but nonetheless doesn't mean that we embrace these things absolutely. For example, um, you know, uh, taking care of a child in the womb doesn't mean that we then therefore denigrate the mother. Um, for example, you know, you can do the opposite of both. Mm. You can look after the child and look after the mother, for example. You know, just little things like that. We need to understand the principles of our argument and be very careful. Mm. There's a really <sighs> there's a really good discussion. <laughs> Actually, there's a, there's a book. If you want to understand what the Catholic Church teaches on how, on how we should organise our life here on earth. There's a fantastic compendium put out by the Pontifical Council for Justice mm, and I've Peace. Heard about this, yeah. I've got a copy of it and I'm working my way through it because it's very much like the catechism, It's but less pithy. Um, it hasn't been quite as well summarised in my opinion, but it's really, really important because it does, get, it does give you the detail that you might not necessarily get on detail and nuance that you might not necessarily get from the pithy statements in the catechism. Not that's not fantastic. So it's called the compendium of the social doctrine of the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. It's like two decades in the making or something ridiculous like that. And it's brilliant. It was commissioned, I think by John Paul II towards the end of his papacy. Yeah. And it was, pu- and it's only been published. Like it was only published in 2012. Wow. So it's a long time coming and it's basically the handbook for the Catholic way of doing things. It yeah. actually talks about the elusive notion of Catholic social teaching yeah. um, and defi- and gives them definition. Because, That's fantastic. Because you keep hearing about this, you know, Catholic social teaching, Catholic social teaching. What is this thing? Yeah. Um, and so if you want to go into more detail, you want to look at the – you want to look at how we should organise our societies, how we should live – all that sort of stuff, how you practically be a Christian and follow your conscience even in, when circumstances completely beyond your control take you places where you never want to be, mm. i.e. look at Hacksaw Ridge, for example. Um, that is a brilliant book to get your hands on to be prepared for that. All right. So well, go find it. That's your, that's your task. Sure, yeah. Uh, we do not receive commission from the Vatican Press. No, we don't. Um, we wish. Or whoever it is that's publishing this. Um, we don't. Uh, but, yeah. Okay. I think we need to stop. Yeah, we we're done. Stop. <laughs> okay. Um, it's not as long as we think it is because there's a whole bunch of stuff that I probably cut out at the start. Um, but, yeah. Cool. All right. Thank you very much, Kiara. Uh, this was fantastic to have you here. Oh, on. where can they get this essay, by the way? Uh, where, can, where can our good, our good okay, listeners okay. read Look, the thing for themselves? I got it from the internet, but no, the internet, the internet. But I'm not sure of its like of its uh, copyright status. Look, if a university has it available on Google, I prayed about it, and you know, I erred on the side of that. It's okay. Okay. Uh, so we'll see you next time on Catholics Read. Bye. Bye. That was an episode of Catholics Read from cradio.org.au.